poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into The Bohemian Beat. I'm ready, with you for the next hour with poetry and music. And let's settle in with some music. Don't be afraid of your freedom!
regimes to shake in their seats. Emma Goldman, who lived between 1869 and 1940, was a revolutionary who came to the United States from Russia in 1885. In 1889, she became part of the anarchist movement, which opposed all forms of government. Anarchism was central to Goldman's view of the world, and she is today considered one of the most important figures in the history of anarchism. First drawn to it during the persecution of anarchists after the 1886 Haymarket Massacre, she wrote and spoke regularly on behalf of anarchism. In the title essay of her book, Anarchism and Other Essays, she wrote, Anarchism, then, really stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, the liberation of the human body from the dominion of property, liberation from the shackles and restraint of government. Anarchism stands for a social order based on the free grouping of individuals for the purpose of producing real social wealth an order that will guarantee to every human being free access to the earth and full enjoyment of the necessities of life, according to individual desires, tastes and inclinations. Goldman's anarchism was intensely personal. She believed it was necessary for an anarchist thinkers to live their beliefs, demonstrating their convictions with every action and word. She writes... I don't care if a man's theory for tomorrow is correct. I care if his spirit of today is correct. Anarchism and free association were to her logical responses to the confines of government control and capitalism. I quote, It seems to me that these are the new forms of life and that they will take the place of the old, not by preaching or voting, but by living them. At the same time, she believed that the movement on behalf of human liberty must be staffed by liberated humans. The following piece is from Goldman's book, Anarchism and Other Essays, first published in 1910. The book outlines Goldman's ideas on anarchism and anarchist approaches to prisons, political violence, education, sex, human rights, women's rights and art and a language warning for the track that follows. Emma Goldman was a leading American anarchist around the turn of the 20th century. Here, she speaks out on the issue of woman suffrage. I am not opposed to woman suffrage on the conventional ground that she is not equal to it. I see neither physical, psychological, nor mental reasons why woman should not have the equal right to vote with man. But that cannot possibly blind me to the absurd notion that woman will accomplish that wherein man has failed. The American suffrage movement has been, until very recently, altogether a parlor affair, absolutely detached from the economic needs of the people. Thus Susan B. Anthony, no doubt an exceptional type of woman, was not only indifferent but antagonistic to labor. In 1869, she advised women to take the places of striking printers in New York. There are, of course, some suffragists who are affiliated with working women, but they are a small minority and their activities are essentially economic. The rest look upon toil as a just provision of providence. Few countries have produced such arrogance and snobbishness as America. Particularly is this true of the American woman of the middle class. She not only considers herself the equal of man, but his superior, especially in her purity, goodness, and morality. Small wonder that the American suffragist claims for her vote the most miraculous powers. 
in her exalted conceit. She does not see how truly enslaved she is, not so much by man as by her own silly notions and traditions. Suffrage cannot ameliorate that sad fact. It can only accentuate it as indeed it does. Her views on woman's emancipation were controversial for her time. The great movement of true emancipation has not met with a great race of women who could look liberty in the face. Their narrow, puritanical vision banished man as a disturber and doubtful character out of their emotional life. But woman's freedom is closely allied with man's freedom, and many of my so-called emancipated sisters seem to overlook the fact that a child born in freedom needs the love and devotion of each human being about him, man as well as woman. Unfortunately, it is this narrow conception of human relations that has brought about a great tragedy in the lives of the modern man and woman. History tells us that every oppressed class gained true liberation from its masters through its own efforts. It is necessary that woman learn that lesson, that she realize that her freedom will reach as far as her power to achieve her freedom reaches. Ain't shit changed, but the manufacturers are weapons. Ain't shit changed, they've replaced 
churches with banks and mainstream news This government was designed to overrule the mob So we mobs designed to overrule the government Emma Goldman, I think I'm Emma Goldman In the belly of the beast, make that motherfucker sick Emma Goldman, I must be Emma Goldman Must be doing something wrong if the feds ain't on my dick You can't say I'm guilty of propping up a cult of personality I'm a Malcolm X man, by any means necessary She spoke in a common tongue No future utopias, we're building it now Horizontally, no 10,000 MLKs Getting bright and black all day I'm a Kropotkin man myself The streets is my office Where I plan my attack You rap, we plot, you vote, we act I'll never say bitch in a song again Liberal, I'm Emma Goldman That was Soul with I Think I'm Emma Goldman. And before that, Suzanne Kempler and Doreen Rappaport reading from Emma Goldman's book, Anarchism and Other Essays. In 1889, Goldman met and began a romance with another Russian immigrant and leading anarchist, Alexander Berkman. This mutual devotion spanned decades despite their disagreements and separations. Goldman lectured widely on anarchism, women's rights and birth control. She was jailed for a year in 1893 for urging people to steal bread if they were starving. She and Berkman edited a monthly magazine, Mother Earth, from 1906 to 1917. Goldman's opposition to the draft during World War I led to her imprisonment and eventual deportation to Russia in 1919. In this next piece, American historian Howard Zinn talks about Emma Goldman. Okay, I'll start with Emma Goldman and then move into other things because I, I, I can never stay with history. That is, I can never stay with the past. And for me, you know, I, I became a historian and went into the past really for the purpose of trying to understand and do something about what was going on in the present. So I never wanted to be a, you know, a historian who sort of goes into the archives and you never hear from him or her again. So yes, my work on Emma Goldman was always connected with, I suppose, the things I was involved in and active in in the world. I had vaguely been aware of Emma Goldman. This is interesting because here I was, a PhD in history. I mean, what could be higher than that? I mean, I mean who could be better informed than a PhD in history? But here I was a, with a doctor from Columbia, and Emma Goldman had never been mentioned in any of my classes, and none of her writings had ever appeared on my reading lists. And it's just that I vaguely remembered reading a chapter about her in an old book called Critics and Crusaders, and there was a little chapter on Emma Goldman. So I had this vague notion about Emma Goldman, but didn't know anything about her. And then I was at some conference in Pennsylvania, and sometimes at conferences you run into interesting people. And I ran into this guy, Richard Drinnen, who's a historian, remarkable historian. Drinnen told me he had written a biography of Emma Goldman, Rebel in Paradise. And so I went to that, and I read his biography, Rebel in Paradise, and it just... Uh, astonished me and uh, made me angry uh, about the fact that I had not been told anything about Emma Goldman in my long <laughs> uh, education. Uh, and here he was this magnificent woman, this anarchist, this feminist, this 
fierce, life-loving person. Of course, that led me to her autobiography, Living My Life, which is, if you have not read her autobiography, you should read it. At a certain point, I decided to require it for students, and I had this big class of about 400 students, and uh, I decided to require it for these 400 students. And at first I thought, living my life, it's a big book. And will they really connect with this early 20th century woman? Uh, here we are, you know, in the 60s. They loved it. And they found in her what I found her, you know, free spirit, bold, speaking out against all authority, uh, unafraid, and as her, the title of her book suggests, living my life, living her life as she wanted to live it, not as the you know, rules and regulations and the authorities were telling her uh, how to live it. So, yeah, that got me interested in Emma Goldman, and, the, and as I said, began reading it, began using her stuff in my classes, and then in, oh, I guess around, well, it had to be, 1975, that's the year the war in Vietnam ended. Right, and I'd always been interested in theater. And so, yes, yeah, so I wrote a play about Emma Goldman. I had to make a decision. Her life was so long and full, and it's always a decision in any work of art. I like to call what I do a work of art, of course. But any work of art, you, it's always a problem of what do you leave in and what do you leave out. And there's so much to her life. And, and so I started with her as a well, as an immigrant girl, teenager, living in Rochester to New York and working in the factory. When Alexander met Emma, the first day she came to New York, Saxus Cafe in Manhattan, coffee and cigarettes and talk. Sun beaten down on the east side Introductions are made in the haze Emma, meet Alexander Emma just smiles as she says Take my Say
newspaper talk turns to headlines I love so cemented in fame A word to the strike-breaking bosses Propaganda in deed and in name Fourteen long years on the island It's a lifetime of summers to wait And Emma, she meets Alexander As they unlock the last prison gate Bohemian Beat, broadcasting nationally since 2007 across a community radio network. We just heard Chumbawamba with When Alexander Met Emma. And before that, from a 2002 Cambridge lecture with American historian Howard Zinn called Emma Goldman, Anarchism and War Resistance. Let's continue with a little more from that lecture with a piece called the importance of dissenting voices. And I came, I, I want to introduce it because I want to hear your views actually. You know, I want to hear what you have to say about it. I, I really always want to know what people are thinking about war. I spoke this morning to Cambridge Ringian Latin, uh, an assembly of students of, I don't know, you know, 300 students or so, you know, and, uh, and uh, uh, there too, I, I spoke about the war totally, all about that. and. and and it's, it's you know, clear that, that you know, people all over the country have been bombarded with the notion that we must support the war, we must support the president, we must have unity, uh, we mustn't dissent, you're either for us or against us. If you raise questions about American foreign policy, uh, the retort is, oh, you're, you're justifying the attacks on the Twin Towers, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, if you say you know there are alternatives to war, you know, uh, and and you probably know that people have been uh, visited by the FBI for criticizing the war and the president. I mean, the, the number of instances like this have multiplied, multiplied around the country. A, a, a retired worker uh, out in the West who made a remark at his sports club critical of Bush was visited by the FBI and asked, uh, are you a member of the sports club? Did you make this remark about the president? Uh, a young woman was visited by the FBI, and they said, we hear you have a poster on your wall with a picture of Bush in a very unflattering way. You mean, we must flatter Bush. <laughs> we can't have a say, have a, but I mean, this is, this is scary. This is, you know, totalitarian, right? I mean, this is, you know, they, they pass a, a Patriot Act, which terrorism is defined in such a way as to enable them to pick up, you know, almost anybody for anything they say, you see. Uh, don't even have to do anything. So uh, we're at a time when, it, well, we're at a time when it becomes even more important to dissent from the establishment and the president and, so on. When everybody's crying, we must unite behind the president. It's exactly at such a time when we need dissident voices. And the irony is that it's exactly in times of war 
That is, when you're dealing with life and death matters, that you're not supposed to speak. So you have freedom of speech for trivial matters, but not freedom of speech for life and death matters. That's a nice working definition of democracy, isn't it? But it shouldn't be that way. This is exactly when we need uh, the most uh, lively discussion. And so wherever I go these days, I try to contribute to that discussion. I spoke recently at uh, Newton North High School. I like to speak to high schools. I spoke recently at Newton North High School. Spoke to a large assembly, I don't know, 500 kids about the war. And after, well, about four parents, five parents, uh, reacted angrily to this, showed up at the school committee in Newton and said, why did they invite him? Uh, why would you let him speak? No, really. But I say this only to indicate that apparently to, to raise questions about the war is to engender a kind of ferocity uh, which goes against the democracy. So yeah, I, 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 I speak against the war and I, um, uh, I'm right against the war. I, I have a little book coming out called Terrorism and War uh, by Seven Stories Press. I've written for the progressive about the war. You know, on both pragmatic and moral grounds, I'm opposed to the war. I mean, pragmatic is simply from, you know, is, is this war effective in doing something about terrorism? It seems to me very clear. You know, you've carried on a war for four months. You've been bombing for three months. And, and the president is asking for $50 billion more for the military budget, $45 billion more for home defense. It seems that people are still worried about terrorism. Have you noticed that people's fears of terrorism have diminished because of the war, since the war? I don't see that. Uh, if anything, excitement is, is growing. And, and, the, and the measures taken, presumably to guard us, you know, Star Wars, going to guard us. Uh, and so measures taken. Uh, so from a pragmatic point of view, uh, what are we doing against terrorism? We're bombing Afghanistan. We set out to say, well, here are these terrorists. Uh, we're going to find them. Would that be dealing with terrorism? We found this group and that group. We bombed the caves in Afghanistan, right? They said there were thousands of Al-Qaeda fighters in the caves. Well, they came up with a handful of people. Where are the others? Well, as we learned from the government itself, there are terrorist networks in 30 different countries, maybe 40. Maybe 50. The number changes from day to day. Uh, it's like, like the numbers of McCarthy's communists in the State Department used to change from day to day. Because the truth is they don't know. And, uh, and so if you don't know, what are you doing bombing Afghanistan? They're sending, well, there may be a network in the Philippines. There may be a network in uh, who knows where, in Syria, in uh, Africa and Somalia, who knows? Well, clearly, uh, you know, we're bombing and bombing, and we haven't done anything about terrorism. It's as if a crime had been committed uh, in, you know, a terrible crime, a mass murder had been committed, and, and you're looking for the perpetrators, and you hear that the perpetrators are hiding out in Cambridge. <laughs> you bomb Cambridge. You, or the criminals in this neighborhood, you bomb the neighborhood on the chance 
that this might result in killing the criminal. This is what we've been doing in Afghanistan. I mean, it's absurd, just from a pragmatic point of view. So this is, the, this is Rumsfeld. This is collateral damage. And it's an accident. And it's uh, unintentional. And or they're deliberately putting civilians in military targets. That always gets to me. You know, this village is destroyed. You mean they populated this village <laughs> with, with ordinary people so that then it would become a propaganda weapon against the United States? It's like, you know, they created a Hollywood set for a and put the... No, something wrong with that. I remembered back to the Gulf War. And here history is important. You know, when you're dealing with an event like this, the, the thing that's happening in Afghanistan, history is important. Because if you don't have any history to America's wars, if you don't have history to American foreign policy, it's as if you were born yesterday. And then whatever the people in authority tell you, you have no way of checking up on it. Uh, and, but you, it's important to remember the lies that were told to, in, to the people of this country during the war in Vietnam, lies about, oh, we're only bombing military targets. Then a million civilians die in Vietnam. No, bombing, bombing military targets.
This is a bohemian beat, and that was Tunnel Metal Experimental Assembly with their track Money, Oil and Tears. And before that, Howard Zinn talking at his 2002 Cambridge lecture series called Emma Goldman, Anarchism and War Resistance. Emma Goldman states that in America, anarchism in its early expressions found its highest expression in the philosophies of Thoreau, Emerson and Whitman. Thoreau writes, Government, what is it but a tradition, though a recent one, endeavouring to transmit itself unimpaired to posterity, but each instant losing its integrity? It has not the vitality and force of a single living man. Law never made man a whit more just, and by means of their respect for it, even the well-disposed are daily made agents of injustice. Goldman says in Anarchism and Other Essays, I quote, Indeed, the keynote of government is injustice, with the arrogance and self-sufficiency of the king who could do no wrong. Governments ordain, judge, condemn and punish the most insignificant offences while maintaining themselves by the greatest of all offences, the annihilation of individual liberty. And this is exactly what we are seeing today. Who'd have thought that even a few years back that Orwellian future in terms of mass technological surveillance would today be so surpassed, so absolutely? America's out-of-control surveillance and global mass data collection shifts all practical power into structures that exist outside of the law and outside of any practical knowledge that we have. In the past, we have seen the danger of the results of data collection. The danger to segregate populations based on outward traits, such as skin colour, physical appearance or religion, political beliefs, family history and cultural affinities. For example, the National Socialist Party in Germany back in the 1930s used this access and warehousing of data as a basis for their attempt to create a pure race of people, unquestioning of authority, uniform in appearance, with homicidal and genocidal tendencies. However, human rights groups, anarchist movements and free speech advocates continue today, even online with groups like WikiLeaks, comprising techno-anarchist rebels fighting the good fight by taking on America's evil military surveillance apparatus. American independent journalist and computer security researcher Jacob Applebaum has said, I quote, Emma Goldman is one of my great heroes, and I think that anarchism is a fantastic principle by which to fashion a utopian society, even if we can't get there. Applebaum is a core member of the Tor Project, a free software network designed to provide online anonymity. He is known for his work with WikiLeaks, which has led to major harassment and intimidation by US law enforcement agencies, forcing him to live in exile in Berlin for fear of his life. This next piece is from a speech that Applebaum delivered in the 2015 World Forum for Democracy. The context in which we are here is a really intense context and I, I feel very sorry for what has happened in Paris and in Beirut 
and additionally for the context that seems to have taken American wars and brought them to European soil. So with that said, the responses that I have seen have been terrifying and not merely in the technological realm. And while I am a technologist, I am also a human being and I refuse to be pigeonholed into merely speaking about technology. Some of the things that I have heard um, raised for me a great deal of historical terror. And I wish to say to especially the people here who are European residents like I am now, that I encourage you to learn from the mistakes of my country in, in the wake of our most recent horrific terrorist attack. I feel that we have responded with wars, and because those wars have come to your doorstep, we actually see grave interventions with more violence, which in fact feed into what Daesh wants. Daesh wants to have more war. They want to eliminate the gray zone where anyone with a beard, anyone who is a Muslim, anyone who looks different will be treated as an outsider and will be harmed. They want to enlargen the xenophobia. They want more violence. And so we should consider whether or not that is what we wish. We also see that the intelligence services have absolutely failed us. You see that the intelligence services of the world claim that it is because of encryption, but the evidence has come out that, in fact, the attacks in Paris were perpetrated by people who used credit cards in their real name, who used unencrypted text messages to say things like, let's go. No one is asking how it is that they are doing arms trafficking. Those are physical goods that do not travel through the Internet. How is it the case that the intelligence services have failed so badly and that they seek instead to distract and to counter-accuse and to suggest encryption, things that people don't understand, that encryption is the issue? How about the fact that the United Kingdom has a plan, essentially, with its intelligence services to do things such as the JTRIG department, where they specifically target religious minorities for political harassment? Why is it that the, U the UK is allowed and in fact encouraged even to harass minorities into becoming informants and if not will threaten them with stripping them of their citizenship. Their citizenship which is effectively the right that grants all other rights. This is a core contributing problem. It is not technology and encryption that is the core contributing problem. It is intolerance. It is a lack of openness, a lack of welcoming. It is this fear of the other that we see. And this idea that we have even heard in France this week um, that there should be preemptive arrests and internment of Muslims. This must not happen. It is absolutely against the rule of law, and even if it were legal, it is against fundamental civil liberties. When the attack in Paris occurred, I was in Kuwait and I was attending an event held by the French ambassador, an artistic event, and I was very shocked by what had occurred and what I found was when talking with people, they were not as sympathetic as I would have expected. It was not that they did not care, but they said instead to me something that struck me. They said, our brothers and sisters are dying in Syria, 250,000 of them so far. More than a million people have died in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you are talking about a couple hundred people in Paris. We feel you, now you feel us. What then might we learn from this? Is the answer to commit more violence? Is the answer to undermine our fundamental liberties, to add back doors to technology? Is the answer, for example, to suggest that the problem is with technology? I think it is not. But it is additionally problematic to suggest that, it is a, that we need a reduction of evil. 
It, it suggests that we don't need to study and to look to the root causes. For example, pa pacifism is much more powerful if we consider that it is a choice and that we choose that when we have the ability to do violence. It is, it is simply the case that violence is to eschew dialogue. It is to get rid of that dialogue. And so to respond with violence is, in, in my opinion, absolutely a, a tragedy upon a tragedy upon a tragedy. We will not bomb Syria into peace. At best, we may bomb it into submission. Submission is not the same as peace. So instead, what we should think about is to consider the humanity. For example, today on the news, we've seen suspects of terrorism, and they've been killed, and the news has stated that no civilians were killed. What is a suspected EU citizen, if not a human being, if not a civilian? Each and every person here could be accidentally killed, as a Brazilian man was by the UK Secret Services after the tube bombing in London. That person was an innocent person, and because their rights were suspended, because they were treated as if they were another, they were killed and they had no due process. We should look to the Norwegians for a response rather than the Americans. After Breivik committed egregious acts of racist, violent terrorism, Norway decided that they would choose a path of more democracy, one where instead of alienating and pushing people away, instead he would, Norway as a country would continue to do things in the way that they had always done them, refusing to be terrorized, refusing to allow the terrorists to change Norwegian society. We should look to that. We should not follow the American example. We should follow the Norwegian example of more democracy, not violence. And so, in fact, the response we should consider is the response of expanding our liberty. So yes, we must fight extremism. Specifically, we should fight the extremism that states have no limits on what they may do or how they may do it. The Council of Europe and the Court of Human Rights exists here today because we understand from history that that is a lie. States commit terrorism just as others can, and we must not forget that that lesson is a hard-won lesson. We have to remember that if we want to get rid of violent extremists from specific people in society, we must remember that it is because of the extremists that silences us with violence or threats of violence. So we must be extreme in our openness and welcoming nature. We must be extreme in a commitment of justice and with an absolute refusal to push away refugees. We must remember that we have an obligation to refugees that comes from a history where others did not act correctly without that obligation. There is an extremism that is correct, that we have an unlimited right to form and to hold beliefs, that these rights must not be abridged. This includes a right to a trial and our right to face an accuser. And there is a new notion that we will all be free and will remain free as long as we submit to endless security checks, border controls, mass and targeted surveillance, and mandatory identification for nearly all interactions. But this notion of freedom is simply incompatible with freedom as we understand it through the court of human rights, through individual and through societal values of liberty. And we see political opportunism, such as by Robert Bob Litt from the intelligence community, who suggests, for example, that the legislative environment is very hostile today. Uh, however, it could turn in the event of a terrorist attack or criminal event where strong encryption can be shown to have hindered law enforcement. There is a value, he said, in keeping our options open for such a situation. Those people are as despicable as terrorists when they would seek to exploit the deaths of these people to erode our liberties for their own personal power.
So there is technology today that helps us to confirm, to ensure, and to expand our liberties, where we have a right to read and we have a right to speak freely and a responsibility to be good to each other. These people wish to weaken our infrastructure. They wish to enable private and government censorship on the internet. They call for back doors or front doors, which will put us at risk. But there are two things you can do right now, if you would like. First, you can install Signal on your smartphone, which will give you encrypted voice calls and text messages without back doors, beating targeted and mass surveillance. I encourage you to do that now. It's free software and it's free of cost. And you can install the Tor browser, which will give you the ability to browse the web and to be anonymous on the internet, where you'll actually be able to do things without leaving a data trail where spies can twist it and harm you later, and where it will make it more difficult for people to target you for other kinds of cybercrime. Both of them are free software implemented for freedom. Remember, it is the same intelligence services who want backdoors today who are exploiting this tragedy, who exploited Vodafone in Greece to wiretap the prime minister, who did mass surveillance on all of Europe now. We cannot trust them. It is the intelligence services of the U.S. and the U.K. that use their surveillance systems to enable extrajudicial assassination. We should secure the Internet to ensure that such things are more difficult, if not impossible. It is problematic to frame our security situation as we see it today. It is not a matter of security versus privacy. Our security requires strong privacy, and our security requires autonomy. It requires transparency and accountability. It requires free speech. It requires fundamental human rights to be respected. And rather than less democracy, we need more democracy. Rather than less secure systems, we need more secure systems, and we need to use them to run them and to fund them. I hope you'll join me in installing free software for freedom and fighting against mass surveillance and refusing to be instrumentalized by the people who have failed us, our intelligence services. Thank you. Thinking about the world as it is 
And before that, internet activist Jacob Applebaum talking at the 2015 World Forum for Democracy. We have come to the end of the hour. I hope you've enjoyed the show today. I'll be back next week, same beat time, same bohemian frequency. And in the meanwhile, check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com, for more information and podcasts. We will end with a track by Jolistics called Say I'm Good from his album Blue Volume and a language warning for this track. Thank you for joining me on the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready. This is for those in betweeners who don't follow no one, follow no leaders, follow no trend or the sheep that are led, follow no fool, never fall in step. I am not another voice in the choir, kicking out jams on the party line. No, I am not your poster child, do my own thing in my own damn style. I would never assume to talk on the behalf of anybody but myself. When I see anybody on a soapbox, all I hear are the warning bells. Even if we're on the same side, I don't follow blind, I am not that guy. And those pigeonholes were only made to hold the kind of bird that's afraid to fly. Swing. 
and the right wing are fucking up the whole thing and it might be the stifling frightening feeling is really only felt in the fringes but I doubt it I reroute it dope with a beat I need to speak about it for the kids of the labor left who got a bone to pick we didn't vote for that fuck stick I don't dig the kid I don't kick the kid I don't think it'd change if you made the switch I don't dig the kid I don't kick the kid I don't think it'd change if you made the switch I don't dig the kid I don't kick the kid I don't think it'd change if you made the switch I don't buy the bullshit dreams of an aspirationless modern Australia they say, they say, I'm good. Okay. I'm 